Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, a scientist tells about coronavirus research that is underway at Upstate. When the virus is, is detectable, we increase the sensitivity a few orders of magnitude. And we made the test deployable in field situations by using a collection kit where the RNA is obtained from saliva that is stabilized. A doctor of emergency medicine explains how care is rendered during the pandemic. The way we've segregated the emergency departments and the way we've ensured universal masking makes it a very safe environment to be seen for your care. And a doctor of integrative medicine talks about cleaning your internal house. I think this is a great time to look at what health habits are serving you and what are destructive and not helping to live the healthiest life. All that, plus a visit from The Healing Muse, right after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Today, on a special coronavirus-themed episode, a doctor of emergency medicine explains how care is rendered during the pandemic. Then we'll talk with an integrative medicine specialist about the existential meaning of this time. But first, a scientist tells about several research projects underway at Upstate that are related to the coronavirus. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. A large group of clinical and basic scientists at Upstate is engaged in several activities related to the COVID-19 pandemic. Dr. Frank Middleton is one of the researchers who's involved in many of those projects, and he is talking with me today. He's an associate professor with appointments in neuroscience and physiology, biochemistry and molecular biology, pediatrics, and psychiatry and behavioral science. Welcome back to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Middleton. Thank you, Amber. It's a pleasure to be back. What projects are underway that are meant to help improve testing related to negative or inconclusive results? That's an excellent question, Amber. So when the original test was released, there were a number of issues related to it that we saw an opportunity to improve. Proof. One of those was the simple fact that the test, as it was supposed to be deployed, did not require that RNA in the sample was protected from degradation. So when a swab was inserted up a subject's nose and then placed in a transport media and sent to a lab sometimes two or three days later, the RNA that was in there from either the virus but also the human host could degrade entirely. However, the approved CDC and New York State test used a measure for quality control to say that the test was valid that only required human DNA to survive the transport. And remind us, what's the difference between RNA and DNA? So RNA is a single-stranded transcript that converts the DNA signals in genes into proteins. And okay. it's much more transient. It readily degrades. If a cell wants to make a protein, it just releases more RNA, and then it gets rid of it. So RNAs are not meant to stay around, but DNA stays around. It's extremely stable. You can find prehistoric DNA from dinosaurs. So unfortunately, 
the primers that are used in the PCR test for New York State, for CDC, they use a human gene primer set that detects DNA just as readily as it detects RNA. So there might have been a sample that only had DNA survived, all potential viral RNA and human RNA degraded, and the laboratory would have concluded that that person didn't have a virus. But in reality, they shouldn't have determined anything because there might not have been any human RNA to survive the trip to begin with. So we redesigned the test to overcome that. We also made it more sensitive, so it would be less likely to miss when things are actually uh, present. When the virus is, is detectable, we increased the sensitivity a few orders of magnitude. And we made the test deployable in field situations, in home environments, by using a collection kit where the RNA is obtained from saliva that is stabilized. And it can be reliably obtained from saliva and spend months in a tube and still suffer no RNA degradation. So this is a big advance forward. It's opened up opportunities for the testing methodology to be utilized in a number of very important situations. One of those, for example, that researchers at Upstate are currently working on in collaboration with a number of surrounding counties is the ability to screen migrant farm workers who carry a high risk of transmitting the disease. They've never been screened potentially before. They live in close confines. We just had an outbreak of something similar in a county adjacent to ours where people were in a greenhouse tested positive at a very high rate. And so this test is something that could be used as a screening methodology very reliably and stably in essentially all of Northern and Central New York because it preserves the quality of the, of the human and the viral RNA if it's there. And it uses only saliva samples, which people are much more willing to donate for a screening test than a nasal swab. Another very interesting opportunity to apply this improved sensitivity and methodology actually has emerged in the form of screening wastewater samples. And so we've actually been working with Onondaga County and the Water Authority to sample and develop methodologies for detecting when the virus is present in a community's wastewater. And believe it or not, even though we think of wastewater as a consumer after product, in terms of the timing of when hospitalizations occur, the virus has been shown in other studies in other parts of the world to predate the peaks of infection. And so you can know when there are viruses and other pathogens in a community, in a neighborhood, not by necessarily going into the homes at all, but just by sampling the wastewater. And this gives us an opportunity to really get a leg up on the virus and where it's spreading. That's very interesting.
You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Frank Middleton, a scientist at Upstate who is involved in a variety of research projects related to the coronavirus. So it sounds like that test would be designed to be more trustworthy um, and more accurate. And also, if I hear you correctly, it would eliminate um, having to go so far back uh, in a person's nose to get a sample. It would be a saliva test, right? That's correct. So the saliva collection is extremely um, non-invasive. Somebody can actually dribble saliva out of their mouth, but uh, using a swab to collect it from the very uh, end of their mouth, a very short swab, uh, has proven to be extremely uh, pleasant, or not unpleasant, I should say, to the people who are um, providing those samples. And it's something that we've, we've used in our studies uh, for at least the last six years, studies of children with autism or people with Parkinson's disease or concussion. All of our work has used this exact same saliva swab approach. And we know that one of the things that it does, in addition to being well tolerated, is the solution in the collection tubes preserves the quality of the RNA. Now, and this is just to show active infection. This has nothing to do with antibodies, right? That's correct. So antibodies aren't really reliably detected until closer to three weeks after somebody has an infection. And it varies depending on someone's immune response and prior history to coronaviruses, the history of exposure. But this is detecting the actual virus. We can quantify the sensitivity of these assays in terms of the number of copies of the virus you would have to have present in your saliva. And we know the sensitivity of that. So it can be very, very accurate as long as the RNA virus is intact. Now, does the viral level change uh, during the course of a person's illness? That's an excellent question. And I'm pleased to say that one of the approved um, assays that you can use for coronavirus detection is actually considered a true quantitative measure. It is the gold standard in lab assays, and that is referred to as digital droplet PCR. And that actually allows you to quantify the amount of virus in terms of copies present in someone's mouth. So we have been using uh, this just approved digital droplet assay in the lab with some of the samples that we have collected. And uh, we believe we should be able to get this uh, up and running. And it turns out our clinical pathology department at Upstate also has the same equipment. So they would be able to run this same assay. We're just working out some of the kinks and then we'll give them a, a full thumbs up. But this isn't something they would do on their own unless a clinician requested it. But clinicians are very interested in knowing the quantitative levels of the virus because that's how you would monitor if somebody is truly viremic. So if you have had 
a rampant systemic release of the virus throughout the body and if they're responding to treatments. So this is a big benefit for the ability to be able to quantify using essentially the gold standard technique, the digital droplet PCR. So I had not heard the word viremic before. Does that refer to having a lot of virus? It really is used to refer to the, the state at which you have virus um, flowing throughout the systemic circulation. So okay. normally this is a respiratory virus and somebody may not have detectable levels in the blood, but once somebody accumulates enough virus, it will pass beyond the respiratory confines and you would have log orders of magnitude, um, higher levels of virus in people and they would be called viremic if they progress to that state. Those are people who may never recover from a coronavirus infection, unfortunately. Well, what work is being done that explores factors that influence resistance to disease or recovery? Are, are there theories for which people might have a natural resistance or immunity? That's an excellent question. And there's a lot of research being done in many different locations to examine this. I'm actually a co-investigator on one study that is launched here in central New York um, to look at potential influences of the host genetics as well as the host um, microenvironment in the upper respiratory tract and, and mouth in subjects. Also to look at comorbidities, medical history, age, sex, smoking history, and try to determine in a prospective fashion what factors have the most influence on whether people are susceptible and whether they respond to the treatments or recover on their own and maintain immunity to the coronavirus. So these are the million dollar questions, multi-million dollar questions a lot of people want to know so that we can prevent this from happening again. And all of us are united in that. And I don't want to say that we have the answers. I don't actually think anyone has the full answers, but we do know that an individual's age, an individual's overall immune status and function, and their comorbid medical history probably stand out right now as three of the more compelling factors that influence the susceptibility and potential recovery. Okay. Uh, what's your best guess about a timeline for a vaccine? That is such an amazing, difficult question to answer. Okay. Uh, the vaccine that would be effective against uh, coronavirus um, that has shown the most promise in preclinical trials is one that uses attenuated viruses. So it's an old approach. It was one uh, that was used by Salk and others developing polio vaccines and is still used um, for influenza vaccines where you would use an attenuated form of the virus. And what does, and, remind, what does attenuated mean? So you have knocked down the pathogen and of the virus 
and potentially made it completely non-infective or virtually non-infective, but it still has all of its proteins. Okay. And those, those proteins will elicit an immune response. And so if it's possible to use completely inactivated virus, that's obviously going to be the best in terms of safety. And hopefully you can really mount a sufficient immune response that anytime the proteins or even some similar proteins from similar coronaviruses are encountered by that person's immune system, they would be able to strongly attack and eliminate those particles. But that depends on a few things. Um, one of those is that those proteins themselves don't undergo rapid mutations and change their appearance or their sequence too much so that antibodies you develop in response to an exposure to the vaccine this year aren't ineffective next year if the coronavirus has changed the same way that influenza and other viruses will change across mm -hmm. time. So that seems to have the most promise. There are definitely other ways to do to develop immune responses. Um, this is different than the current cutting edge therapies that have been developed and have been used at Upstate, which involve really what's called um, transfer technologies, where you would take antibodies somebody else has generated in response to the coronavirus and give that to a sick person. But it's related to the same idea. Normally, a human immune system will not tolerate these viruses, and they will develop antibodies. Hopefully, we can follow the lead of the immune system and have a, a broadly applicable, widely deployable vaccine that protects people for more than one year at a time. But it will take a lot more effort. The, the approach that I mentioned has been shown to work in non-human primates, some studies that were um, made available just last week and the week before, it's shown incredible promise in non-human primates, which have very similar respiratory system to humans and immune response. So it's really just now entering the, the clinical trials with human subjects who volunteered. And that's really what it's gonna take. Initially, it's going to take volunteers who are willing to have a vaccine and then undergo an exposure. I think those will be the next real remarkable round of heroes that we see emerge from this. Thank you to Dr. Frank Middleton, one of the scientists at Upstate who is involved in research related to coronavirus. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Stand by for details about visiting the emergency department during the pandemic on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Of course, hospitals are taking care of patients with ailments that are not related to the coronavirus, but there are some changes in the way healthcare is being delivered. Talking with me about what a trip to the emergency department is like during the pandemic is Dr. Bill Paolo. He's an associate professor of emergency medicine and of public health and preventive medicine at Upstate, and he's the interim chair of the emergency department. Welcome back to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Paolo. 
Thank you for having me. Now, in some parts of the country, emergency departments have seen a reduction in the number of patients seeking care. Is, do you think that's happening here? Yeah, I would say that's happening here. What we've seen as the pandemic has moved its way into central New York is that the overall volume of patients that we're seeing has gone down. Now, simultaneously with that, what we're seeing is that most of the people who are coming to emergency departments are presenting with COVID-related complaints, things like shortness of breath, fever, cough. So while the overall volume of standard everyday complaints like appendicitis and chest pain has gone down, what we've seen is that has mostly been filled with people with COVID. So do you fear that there are people in the community that have legitimate medical problems and they're not seeking treatment for them? Yeah, this is one of our biggest concerns. So when we look at countries that preceded us, like Italy, what we found was there was a proportion of individuals in the epidemiological data that were listed as excess deaths not attributable to COVID. And presumably these are individuals with things like diabetes, congestive heart failure, and chronic medical conditions who don't seek care because they're afraid that they might get infected at their physician's office or at the hospital. And what it turns out is when these individuals don't seek care, they become peripheral injuries from the pandemic. So they might not be directly harmed by the pandemic, but their fear of seeking care results in harm because their chronic conditions continue to worsen without care. So what we try to emphasize to individuals is that your chronic conditions are not going to get better during COVID. Your rates of catching COVID in the hospital are exceedingly low. So please, if you have any of these conditions, go to your doctors, schedule a telemedicine visit, or come to the emergency department just like you always would. So how can patients be assured that they won't catch the virus by coming to the hospital? Sure. I would tell you that I think the hospital environment is one of the safer places to be right now. It's certainly less chaotic than a grocery store, by way of example. So when you come to the hospital, uh, the first thing that you'll note, especially if you come to a place like Upstate, is that everybody wears masks. So everybody, whether you're a patient with an ankle sprain or a patient with cough, is put, in a, uh, is put into a mask. In addition, we take a look at what your complaints are and decide where in the emergency department you might go. We've segregated our emergency department into a COVID-like side, so if you have COVID-like symptoms, and a non-COVID side, say you are that individual with an ankle sprain. If you have COVID-related complaints, you get put into a private room, the door is closed, you're not exposed to the rest of the people who are there with you, you have a separate waiting area and a separate triage area. If you come with non-COVID-related complaints, your ankle sprain, your diabetes-related complaints, you go into a different part of the emergency department. Regardless, though, everybody is masked, and the only thing that changes is the level of masking that we use for people with COVID or people that we're suspecting might have COVID versus people that do not. So I would tell you that the way we've segregated the emergency departments and the way we've ensured universal masking makes it a very safe environment to be seen for your care. And so if people show up there and they don't have a mask, you will give them one? That's correct. That's okay. correct. And you get your temperature checked. Uh, everybody that comes into the hospital now uh, gets their temperature checked too. So everybody meaning visitors as well, or are visitors still restricted? Visitors are still restricted, but that means even EMS and uh, janitorial staff, nurses, physicians, anybody that enters the property gets their temperature checked before they're entered into the property. So how do things work? Because Upstate has the, the region's pediatric emergency department as well. Are you doing sort of the same thing for the children? 
Uh, yes, we're doing the same thing in terms of masking. In terms of visitor, we allow one parent to go with them. Uh, so they don't have a lack of visitor policy, obviously, because these are pediatric patients. The parent is masked, the child is masked. Um, and then we do have not two separate sides, not a COVID side and a non-COVID side, but we do have rooms that we put individuals or children that we're concerned about COVID into. Um, so we do have a process there. It's not quite the same as in the adult ED, um, but the process is there to ensure uh, reduction in transmission. All right. So parents can be assured that they can still come to the pediatric emergency department without being exposed. That's correct. So how is telehealth being used in the emergency department or is it? So what we've done is we've created a, a virtual platform uh, that allows us to see patients with urgent care type of complaints. So if you had you know, minor cuts and scrapes, medication refills, things that you would wind up normally to go to an urgent care for, we have a virtual emergency department that you can visit now. Uh, it's available in Upstate's MyChart or available on the emergency department Upstate website. All you do is make a phone call or click an appointment and then you'll see an emergency physician, a board certified emergency physician from the comfort of your home. Now this is not to supplant coming to the emergency department when you need to. This would be for the type of complaint you would go to an, an urgent care for. Um, and if you were going to wind up going to an urgent care, uh, we would rather be able to see you from the comfort of your home. We still want as many people in the emergency department as possible for those emergency complaints, but this is for the less emergent complaints that would normally wind up as under an urgent care umbrella. So do you need to have a computer to use the telehealth option or is there a, a dial-in option? You can, we do telephone consults. We prefer you utilize something with a webcam. Um, so that can work from any smartphone, a computer or a laptop. Okay. Well, this is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Bill Palo, the interim chair of Upstate University Hospital's emergency department. So I wanted to ask you to go through the procedure for caring for someone who comes to the emergency department because they have fever, difficulty breathing, some of the hallmark symptoms of COVID-19. Are you still sure. asking that they call first? Um, we do ask if you have that to call, um, but if you are in extremis or in distress, we just prefer you come to the emergency room and we can start taking care of you right away. So some of the things that we do when you come in, number one, we're going to put you in an isolating room, an isolation room, and in there, we're going to start care. So some of the things that we're concerned about with COVID in particular are the failure to be able to get oxygen into your lungs and then into your blood. So some of the things that we start doing immediately, in addition to getting blood work, testing you for COVID, getting things like chest x-rays, are to give you some kind of supplemental oxygen and see how you respond to that. Uh, one of the most important things and a hallmark of how you will do is how you respond to oxygen once we administer it. Um, so people we see with COVID generally have lower what we call oxygen saturations. That's the percent of oxygen bound to hemoglobin in their bloods. So what we expect is that when we give them supplemental oxygen, then they'll start to improve. If they don't, we have other ways of helping you as well. But what you'll find that we do is immediately you start having tests. We put IVs in you. We test you for COVID. We do have two types of COVID tests depending upon what we think about. Uh, one is a very rapid test that turns around in 45 minutes. One is a longer test that takes about 24 hours. Uh, we have both to implement, and it depends on a number of different factors, which one we will perform. Um, if you're going home, we're generally doing the 24-hour one. If you're being admitted, we're generally doing the rapid one. 
And then you'll find that your mask and all of us are going to be wearing PPE, so personal protective equipment, uh, N95 masks, goggles, gowns, and what have you. So how do you decide if someone's going to go home or if they need to be admitted? So we have a constellation of symptoms that we utilize and uh, objective parameters that we utilize to see who needs to come into the hospital and who can go home. Most of those pertain to your clinical status. How are you breathing? How is your work of breathing? Work of breathing being defined as do you look when you're sitting down like you just ran a marathon? Or do you look like you're comfortable and breathing at a normal rate? How is your oxygen saturation? What comorbidities do you have? Do you have diabetes? How old are you? Um, how are your laboratory values? Are they showing some of the abnormal laboratory values that we see in more severe forms of COVID? So we use that as a constellation of symptoms and laboratory values and objective clinical findings to discern whether or not you're in a higher risk category or a lower risk category. If you're in a lower risk category, we tell you to go home and self-quarantine. We provide you with a mask when you go home and to self-quarantine uh, for up to 14 days, um, depending upon your test. If your test is negative, then you could potentially, potentially with uh, utilization of Department of Health, be removed from quarantine before that. But if you're positive, certainly for 14 days, and then removal from quarantine in conjunction with the Department of Health. Okay, interesting. Well, from the perspective of an emergency physician, how does this infection differ from influenza? Because you sort of see an uptick in influenza cases each flu season, right? Mm -hmm. How does this differ from that? Um, so what I would tell you is the clinical behavior of this is similar to influenza insofar as the same type of manifestations of severe symptoms that we would see in influenza we're seeing with this. So the amount of pneumonia, um, what we call ARDS or acute respiratory distress syndrome are similar to the patterns that we see in influenza. What's distinct here is the amount and severity that we're seeing. So with standard yearly influenza, we see small rates of these kind of complications, severe infection of the lungs, severe systemic inflammatory syndromes. With COVID, it happens on around a 10 to 15 time higher rate than seasonal influenza. So when we look at severity, when we look at mortality, what we find is in terms of respiratory viral pathogens, it has some of the similar hallmarks to influenza, but it does it at a much more aggressive and much higher rate than, uh, than seasonal influenza. This behaves much more like what we would call pandemic influenza, much similar to what we saw in the 1918 flu pandemic when a brand new flu virus came on the world and infected a giant rate thanks to World War I and the dispersion of population in, uh, in World War I and wound up with really high death rates. So what we see is that it's similar in terms of its manifestations with some unique and quirky things about it, but it affects uh, much more people and the severity of it is much more severe. How did your training in emergency medicine prepare you for a pandemic response? So when I was a resident, we did research into modeling for flu pandemics. So respiratory pandemics are something that we always worry about because we know on 50 to 100 years, we're going to encounter respiratory pandemics. It's never gone away. It's always been an inevitability. Uh, so part of what I did was I worked with a team that was doing avian influenza modeling. So we looked at things that we're dealing with now. Some of these questions that you're seeing on a larger scale are things that we've all thought about. How much PPE are needed? How many ventilators do we have? What are the movement of people? 
Where are the hotspots that we're going to have to deal with? How do you put out a hotspot and contain a hotspot? Where do people congregate the most? So emergency medicine prepared me intellectually for it. And then in terms of my day-to-day clinical practice, it certainly prepared me to take care of these people because what does an emergency physician do on a day-to-day basis? We diagnose disease, we stabilize the acuity of illness, and then we treat. So things that we need and the skill set that we have as emergency physicians, the ability to recognize severe illness, to isolate severe illness, to treat people, to intubate if we need to, to treat systemic inflammatory conditions are all in the cadre of what an emergency physician does. Thank you so much to Dr. Bill Palo. He's an associate professor of emergency medicine and of public health and preventive medicine at Upstate, and he's the interim chair of the emergency department at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, replacing bad habits with healthy ones. Medical University in Syracuse, New York. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. All this seclusion that so many of us have faced affords us time to reflect on our health and relationships. Talking with me about this is Dr. Susan Levinson. She's an assistant professor of family medicine specializing in integrative medicine at Upstate, and she joins me by phone. Welcome back to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Levinson. Hi, Amber. It's great to be here again. I know there's a lot of frustration and fear, but are you also finding patients or or friends of yours who are using this time to be sort of reflective? Um, Yeah, that's been one of the surprises. I think there's been a lot of surprises during this pause. Um, The most, I think my biggest surprise was some um, patients who I I spoke with during the first week of the quarantine and I was actually surprised at how joyful they were feeling. Um, I was expecting, you know, I'd been, I'd been on call the weekend before and I was expecting sort of a lot of anxiety and fear and they were actually kind of in their bliss. They had spent the weekend eating healthy food and doing meditation chanting, and really just enjoying the time. They had been uh, conscious of how much news they were consuming, getting enough to stay informed, but not obsessing. And one of them started, um, This one of my, the women started um, telling me about the meditation she'd been having. And <clears throat> she recited, or she commented about uh, breathing and sharing love and sharing breath. And I found that really profound because we have learned that this virus is droplet um, is droplet born. And so I didn't realize how much breath had started to become an enemy and something that we feared that I, fe- I feared sharing breath and breathing started to feel very scary. And I realized at that moment that even at the beginning of this pause or the, this infective spread in our community, I realized at this moment that it's not too early to think about healing. 
And I had never before realized that healing could be going on at the exact same time as the onset or the beginning of illness or uncertainty. So I found that pretty profound and then realized that it's not it's not too early to engage in a deep and profound way with our health. You know, and I found that inspiring. I've heard and watched the um, CNN anchor Chris Cuomo had been infected with this. And he had talked about it and said that he had done breathing exercises daily while he had this as a way to sort of help him heal. Mm, yeah. Yeah, that's interesting, right? Because ultimately this is about, one of the things this is about is about our breath and, um, you know, in yogic traditions, uh, breath or prana is life. So it really does tie us to um, our fragility and our uh, conscious awareness of being alive. That's interesting that Chris came to that maybe intuitively or maybe something that he'd been practicing? Well, I think the situation has brought a lot of people are wrestling with like existential questions, um, you know, about what this means. And how do you as a physician help someone who's wrestling with things? You know, what is the meaning of life? And what does this mean about me? What's going to happen? How do you help people? And is that a healthy thing for people to be thinking? Absolutely. I think so. And it's very how I think this is <clears throat> really a time when those questions come up. I don't think that's a bad thing at all. Actually, I think that that's very healthy, both individually and collectively for us all to spend time right now reflecting and kind of going a little bit deep inside. And I guess some of the ways that I try to help people is that I'm trying to engage in that process myself. I haven't had any experience previously in living through a pandemic, and I don't think any of us have. And so it's really been, for me, a lot about feeling through and recognizing that I'm having a lot of emotions that come up and they change on a regular basis. And even sometimes I wonder, you know, what is my purpose? What is my purpose? I was wondering that last night as I was going to bed because, well, when your life changes and when your patterns change and you, it's harder to define yourself by your routines, it lays you more open to really question some of those deeper, those deeper thoughts. And I think that's very healthy, actually. And I think yeah. it helps us to prepare well, for maybe so many, what might be next. So many people have an identity that's attached to their career or, you know, students with school. And that's sort of been ripped out from beneath us. So we're left to, I don't know, just kind of wonder what, I mean, what does this mean? Is this going to, are we going to learn as a society some sort of lesson having gone through this pandemic, do you think? I really hope so. I really hope so, because this is a at the same time as being a time of incredible suffering and uncertainty and loss and grief for a lot of people. 
It's also a time to think about what that all means. So, you know, it's interesting that you mention identity because, um, <clears throat> you know, there's a difference between pain and suffering. And suffering, um, part of suffering has to do with identity because, you know, we're social and we identify and define ourselves a lot of times through our relative uh, interactions and our relationships with other people. And so right now where we've become relatively isolated, we might still have identities of who and what we, you know, what we do as a living, or maybe people are unemployed or maybe they're in between jobs. So um, there is a huge identity crisis, I think, going on at the moment with a lot of people. Um, but that suffering, I don't think has to be done in, I, I would really hope that that suffering is not done in vain. And <clears throat> what I often have noticed with people who are going through individual crises and changes is that um, if there's some meaning that you can glean from your suffering, then it's not the worst type of suffering, which is senseless suffering. It becomes meaningful. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Dr. Susan Levinson. She's an assistant professor of family medicine, and she specializes in integrative medicine at Upstate. And we're talking about reflecting on health and relationships during this time that has been marked by lots of seclusion. And I know you as a family physician have been able to uh, do some telehealth appointments with patients, but let me ask you, you and especially primary care doctors, do you feel you have a responsibility to address a patient's spiritual needs? Oh, absolutely. Because <clears throat> I think that uh, at all times, a spiritual need is, especially, you know, if you're looking at a, um, at a person holistically, I personally believe that um, somebody's spiritual self is, as important in that um, holistic view as their physical, their emotional, their mental, and their spiritual health. And especially right now, <clears throat> where people may be having identity crises or a lot of uncertainty, that spiritual, um, a spiritual underpinning or a sense of purpose becomes even more important. So um, it, that becomes a, an important uh, App, um, aspect of somebody's return to health or using this as as a time of healing. So, yeah. Do you think that we can use this pandemic uh, as a time to start making positive health changes? Would this a be lot a of, good time to do that? <clears throat> I think that that's, you know, on one hand, I think people feel stressed and, you know, Certainly the idea of going into a pandemic and coming out an expert in some new field, I think might be a little bit of a, of a tall order. But I think this is a great time to kind of clean your internal house and to look at what habits, what health habits are serving you and what are destructive and not helping your life um, at the moment to live the healthiest life. Also, from a preventative point of view, I think it's particularly important for patients to really take inventory of um, their own health and what habits they're um, 
they're uh, relying on to get through their days. Um, whenever you have a habit, it tends to be tied to other habits. So right now there's been a big change in how we're living our life. So actually it's a pretty decent time to maybe, maybe get rid of, you know, a smoking habit or a sugar habit or something like that. Well, it sound, I mean, you, when you said, you know, clean your internal house, a, a lot of people are feeling like, you know, they need a project, they need something to do, you know, so maybe why not, right? Absolutely. How do you as a physician help coach someone through, well, let's take the desire to quit smoking or the desire to, um, you know, eliminate added sugar from your diet? How would you help someone go about doing that during this time? Those are some of my favorite things to do. <laughs> um, I love talking to people about quitting smoking. It's really fun. Um, I always try and get a sense of where they are in that process. If they're um, interested at all, if they're not interested. And I also try and get a sense if somebody thinks that they can or can't get a sense of how much empowerment they feel towards making a change. Um, and then I try to figure out if I can kind of move that dial a tiny bit. Um, for smoking, you know, I don't wanna to go too much on the, um, on the kind of fear factor because that I think can make you wanna smoke a little bit more because it's stressful. So um, I might remind people though that there is some additional dangers perhaps in maintaining a tobacco habit right now because it requires you to go out to the store, maybe have a potential exposure. And I think that one thing that the COVID virus has done is it's really pointed out all of the, all of the vices that we have as a society and it really seems to exploit them. So smoking has been no exception. We've known for a long time that smoking can make a severe infection uh, occur. So I don't try to do too much of the fear factor, but I do remind people of that and that might get somebody interested. Um, other things I like to do is sort of identify how much of a smoking habit is nicotine addiction and how much of it is behavioral and habit. And once we get into the habit territory, then it can get a lot of fun because you can start to figure out what are the triggers? What are the underlying reasons? You know, what is the emotional need for smoking? And once you start to figure out what those emotional needs are, then the world can open up to you a little bit and you can start to think about constructive rather than destructive habits. Because as I always tell my patients, um, your emotional need for smoking is totally legit. It's totally legit, whatever it is, whether it's boredom or loneliness or frustration or stress, those are completely legitimate reasons to have stress or look for some way to find a, you know, a way out of that discomfort. But the key is not to push those feelings away. The key is to understand those feelings and find a healthy habit to do instead. And oftentimes I'll encourage people to think about something that they really are maybe secretly wishing was a part of their life now. And that starts to be a lot of fun. People might have um, 
maybe they played the flute in their past. I've talked to patients who said, yeah, I did play flute in high school. I still have a flute around. And then I might encourage them to imagine their world, to imagine their life with the beautiful sound of their flute music when things are feeling a little bit um, rocky or a little boring or whatnot, rather than um, smoking. And it does paint a, it does paint a different picture. So, so that's finding fun. finding something to replace the bad habit. That's neat. A, a positive thing. Yeah. Well, thank you so much to Dr. Susan Levinson from Upstate's Department of Family Medicine, where she specializes in integrative medicine. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's Literary and Visual Arts Journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Poets often break down actions or emotions into smaller components, so the listener or reader can really see or feel. I have two poets here to demonstrate how artful their ability is. First is Jerome Gagnon from Northern California, whose first prize-winning full collection of poetry, Rumors of Wisdom, appeared last year. Here is Invisible Ocean. It's sometime around 5 a.m. when I wake him for medicine and water. Each sip has become a struggle, confounded by almost constant thirst. Small sips, I say, to minimize choking. How could I have forgotten how essential it is to swallow? How we take the world in daily and act as vital as breathing? How the world will swallow us whole and expel us into measurelessness. How water receives water, a process so pervasive it becomes almost invisible. Jasper Kennedy is a trans organizer and avid crocheter whose poem Starling's Law of the Heart reveals the miracle that is our heart muscles function. The heart is a machine in a circuit of vessels. Pump more out, more will return. Get back what you put in. Reap what you sow, as if anything works that way. It's a nice idea. I close my eyes, and my fist is a ventricle that I tense and relax, systole and diastole, in the palm of my hand. I pop up my thumb and audibly suck in air, Extend my fingers like I'm holding a water balloon, filling with blood. Behind my eyelids, I see sparks as I clutch, current arcing at my wrist, and feel what it's like to hold the magnitude of what I've been served in the flat of my hand and dish it back out with a squeeze. This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. If you missed any of today's show, or to hear podcasts on a variety of health topics, visit our website at healthlinkonair.org. 
or do a podcast search for the phrase HealthLink on Air. I'm Amber Smith, thanking you for listening.